Welcome to Not Fair, the podcast where we call out the inequalities, obstacles, or just plain inconveniences that stand in our way. I'm your host, Zoe Mitchell. On today's episode, we bring you two very different stories of parents experiencing loss. First, we focus on the epidemic of gun violence in America today. Since the shooting in 2012 at Sandy Hook Elementary School, the Gun Violence Archive website reports that there have been over 1,500 mass shootings, defined as wounding or killing four or more people. That's approximately one shooting a day since the killing of the 20 kindergarten children at Sandy Hook. Reporter Sarah Silberger focuses in on the effects that the loss of a loved one to gun violence can have on two different families, including on the father of a child killed at Sandy Hook. A viral tweet that has been circulating reads, in retrospect, Sandy Hook marked the end of the U.S. gun control debate. Once America decided killing children was bearable, it was over. But to a few parents of children slain by gun violence, the conversation is far from over. Boston University News Service reporter Sarah Silberger has the story. December 20th of 1993, five days before Christmas, Lewis was caught in a crossfire of a shootout. He was my oldest son. That's Tina Sherry, mother of Lewis Brown, who was killed at age 15. In a tragic irony, he was on his way to a Teens Against Gang Violence meeting in Boston. He was an excellent student, and he had big dreams. He wanted to get a PhD in aerodynamic engineering, and he wanted to become the first African-American president of the United States. On the morning of December 14, 2012, my seven-year-old was shot to death in his first grade classroom. That's Mark Barden, father of Little Daniel, as he calls him. He was one of the 20 first graders killed during the Sandy Hook massacre in Connecticut. Little Daniel was just a fountain of compassion and awareness of others. This was a kid that would pick up worms off the sidewalk and put them in the grass so they didn't burn in the sun. His teachers would tell us at every single parent-teacher conference, if Daniel sees somebody sitting alone, he wants to make sure they're okay and will ask to be excused from an activity to go sit with them. Sherry and Barden have turned their sorrows into action. They have both founded organizations in their child's memory to advocate that gun violence be treated as a public health issue. When my family and I went to then Boston City Hospital, we were told that Lewis was brain dead. When I saw Lewis lying there, I didn't want to believe it was him. That couldn't be my son. When I lifted the sheet, I saw his distinctive feet. Sherry founded the Lewis D. Brown Peace Institute, whose tagline sums up their mission as transforming society's response to homicide. We started the Peace Institute with three goals in mind, to teach the value of peace, to focus on the assets of my community, and to transform the way society responds to homicide. My family and I left the hospital empty-handed. See, at that time, early 90s, there were no resources for families of murdered victims. Now, the advocates of the Peace Institute are there to support families through the funeral and burial process. We offer practical, emotional, and financial support and we've developed the first ever Survivor's Burial and Resource Guide, a step-by-step workbook for regaining control. Barden helped found Sandy Hook Promise, an organization that focuses on how even children like his son can prevent gun violence. So we have developed four programs. They address social isolation, they address good upstander behavior, 
We have a, a suicide, signs of suicide program and an intervention program for adults and teachers. The guy that killed my little boy was chronically socially isolated. And if maybe somebody like my little Daniel had had one more conversation with him, maybe this wouldn't have happened. So we're training kids to do that. Say Something is a program that trains kids how to look for language and social media to listen to conversations in the lunchroom and listen for kids talking about hurting themselves or hurting somebody else and then connect that kid to a trusted adult who can help them. Despite their efforts, the Trump administration offers little hope of any radical change. White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders shocked the country when she deemed any questions about gun control as too political in the wake of the Las Vegas mass shooting, which killed 58 and injured hundreds of others. For the BU News Service, I'm Sarah Silbker. Next, I, Zoe Mitchell, bring you a story of a father fighting in court for his son with the constant fear of losing access to his child. When I think about the men's rights movement, I think about the ridiculousness of, say, the so-called Meninists on the TV show Parks and Rec. Free and white! Free and white! Excuse me, free me from what? From the tyranny of women. We are the male men. We are a men's rights activist group, and we are fed up. The over-exaggerated, eye-roll-inducing boycotts that men's rights activists incite over anything feminist. The new Mad Max movie is opening this weekend, and some are saying it might be the greatest action movie ever. Others are calling it feminist propaganda. And on a more serious note, the terrifying open hostility of the white men who marched and murdered in Charlottesville for their right to be heard. You will not replace us! It's hard for me to have sympathy with these men's rights groups. I am a feminist and was a gender, sexuality, and women's studies major in college. But after the election of President Donald Trump, there has been a cultural shift. Journalists are now trying to understand these, quote, forgotten men. It made me, a feminist and a journalist, wonder if there was more to these men's rights groups than I thought. So-called free speech groups and alt-writers have already had so much media attention. While researching different subsects of men's rights movements in the United States, one group in particular caught my attention the Father's Rights Movement. I'm Zoe Mitchell. This is Not Fair, the podcast. This is my photo book. Um, every year I give my son at Christmas uh, a, a picture of all the things uh, we do. Um, and he remembers our places, our time that we spent at the aquarium here, in front of my house, at the beach. He remembers um, shaving. Chris is the 33-year-old father to one son. I am not using Chris's last name because his custody battle for more equal parenting time with his son is ongoing. I met with him near his home, outside of a public library. He brought along a photo album filled with photographs of his son, who is five years old. Tub time, shave, you know. <laughs> he, uh, he remembers them when he sees them. And you know, those are the memories that I'm trying to instill and make sure he doesn't forget. When I <laughs> loves that movie, Big loves Daddy. Big Daddy. <laughs> um, cooking, you know, we spend time cooking. Give him the best of life. You know, all the good things that she does with the child is great, but there's also good things that I do with the child and uh, with my son. Chris is one of the parents involved in the father's rights movement. I'm out there fighting for my child 
Father's Rights Movement provided me a support group where I wasn't the only one going through this situation. That, you know, I wasn't the only one struggling and trying to see that kid and, you know, the child being withheld from that parent. Chris first encountered the group three years into his custody battle, which has been going on for five years now. He brought along a plastic crate filled with binders where he's kept every document related to his case. Chris has been through three attorneys and said he has spent over $70,000 in legal fees. He walked me through some of his earliest court summons from 2013. So these are all your court documents? These are my court documents and it was the first uh, uh, serve uh, when I got served by the mother. So when my child was born, uh, it was eight months after my child was born, I was served. Like I said, in which the mother lived at my house, the child lived at my house. Our relationship was, wasn't going well. I, it was just, we weren't happy. Chris and the child's mother were never married. They were high school sweethearts and had been in a relationship for 10 years on and off, Chris told me. After they separated, the mother filed for child support from him and their custody case began. At first, the mother was awarded temporary physical and legal custody of the son. This is typical in paternity cases where the couples are not married. So six months later, he went back to court to determine permanent physical and legal custody and work out the child support payments. Uh, once we're going through lawyers, the lawyers are going at it. It's $300 an hour for a lawyer. Um, so lawyers are going at it. She still can call me an unfit parent. So I had to go through supervised visits just based on the fact that the mother said that to the judge. Chris does not have a criminal record. He has a good, steady-paying job that he's held for many years. He's a military veteran, and he has his own home. But with supervised visits, Chris only had one to two hours a week with his son, with supervision, for six months. But the person supervised at a daycare facility, they're like, you know, fathers don't come in here unless they're abusive, unless something happened with the child. And I looked at her, I says, that has nothing to do with me. I have a good, clean record. I says, the mother just made allegations to the judge that I was unfit, which was mind-blowing that I had to do supervised visits under just no circumstances, no evidence. Chris requested, quote, reasonable, unquote, contact with his son. This is what you wanted right here, that, that plaintiffs shall have the right to visit and to receive visits from the minor child at reasonable times upon reasonable notice. Yeah. And that the defendant shall make reasonable efforts to accommodate plaintiff in the collection and return of the minor child regarding such visits. Like literally, I just wanted that's to That's kind of all you want. That's all. My child's five years old. He has another life with the mother. He has a life here uh, with me as a dad. Um, so he goes down, you know, they live 40 miles away. He goes down to school there. He just started school. You know, he lives there. He has his own routines. And I'm okay with that. It's. You know, I have week, some, some weekends off, I have the holidays off. I should, you know, be able to see my child, you Somewhere. know, at minimum, at a minimum, you know, fair to see him. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case. Chris is not alone in feeling frustrated and forgotten by the family court system. About one-third of marriages in the United States end in divorce, according to the National Center for Family and Marriage Research, and this doesn't include unmarried couples with children who split up. While there are no formal estimates of just how many men are involved in the father's rights movement, it is a national organization with chapters in all 50 states. I spoke with and messaged multiple men, both married and unmarried, who were affiliated with the organization in Massachusetts. All implied that the courts, even if the law does not directly say so, favor the mother and the mother's interests over their own. 
I wanted to find out how true that was and learn a little bit more about family law. So I went to the financial district in downtown Boston and visited the family law firm of Prince Lobel and Ty. Pasquale DeSantis, I'm a partner here at Prince Lobel Ty. I'm also an adjunct professor at Suffolk Law School in the area of family law. Time for a little history lesson. Custody rules have morphed over the past 200 years. The father used to own the mother and the child, then the mothers gained back more rights to the point where the mother became the preferred parent for the child over the father. The courts used to abide by the tender age doctrine, which said if a child was under a certain age, they should go with the mother. This morphed into the primary caretaker presumption, which assumed the child should go with whoever took care of them, which most of the time was, again, the mother. Now, what, what's the standard today? The standard is the child's best interest. I want the order in the court here. Dan, get that dog out from under that stove. This place smells like a monkey cage here. First case on the docket. DeSantis brought a Massachusetts family law source book to show me exactly how the law is written in Massachusetts. There's no favor, there's no presumptions in Massachusetts about mom is going to have custody or dad is going to have custody or it's, or it's joint. You know, as a starting point, uh, upon a judgment for divorce, the court may, now may means the court has discretion, not mm, make such judgment as it considers expedient relative to the care, custody, and maintenance of minor children of the parties. That's it. That's, the, that's where it all derives from, from right here. So the court has very wide, broad authority in determining what is in the child's best interest. Kind of sounds like, and this was a complaint I heard too, so the, the phrase child's best interest, it, it feels like it is very much determined by the single cases, right? There, is there any written out, this is what's in the child's best interest? No. No, and you cannot have that. There's no, uh, as I said, you can have some guidelines, some of the, the things the court looks at, but um, all of the relevant facts, what the, whatever the judge determines is relevant to this particular case uh, to decide what is in the child's best interest. So every fact, everything is important. So there isn't one, I mean, as I said, some st states by statute may have some guidelines, and if you were to read the cases, uh, you'll see, you were, you're, you're able to see you know, what the judges relied on uh, making findings, but uh, the bottom line is this, you know, what are the relevant fact, what are, excuse me, what are the relevant factors that weigh in on what the child's best interest is? I know it sounds, you know, child's best interest sounds, you know, what does it mean? How do you define it? And people want, uh, specific definition, but uh, you cannot have that because you have to look at the totality. And I, I'm just curious, um, who is ultimately the one to make the determinant based on that evidence in the Massachusetts court system? When you have issues of custody and or parenting, the, the judge is the only one who has the authority to make a uh, determination. Now, to assist the courts, there are uh, custody evaluators. We call them guardian ad litem. The guardian ad litem is a mental health professional or lawyer who checks the claims made by the mother and the father. They speak with all parties, including the child. Sometimes, but not always, the judge will ask them to make a recommendation about custody. Now, for a moment, let's go back to Chris's case. 
here's where things get interesting. I had asked him if he had a guardian ad litem for his multiple custody lawsuits. In my case, there wasn't. For whatever, I mean, whatever circumstances, there just wasn't a GLA. Do you wish, do you wish that there would have been? I heard uh, it's, uh, it's um, not favorable, uh, you know, to both parents. You know, it's, it just favors one parent over the other, you know, whether they live in a better home than the other parent, better toys, better clothes. Um, I don't think they take the whole, whole lifestyle in consideration to the child. DeSantis, though, believed that it was probably not in his best interest to do this. Uh, one party may have requested, the other may have opposed, and the judge uh, uh, opted not to uh, appoint a guardian ad litem. Uh, so it's up to, to the judge. The parties can agree, uh, and oftentimes that's rubber stamped, if you will, by a judge. That is, the parties agree to an appointment of a guardian ad litem. Or if they don't agree to parties, one of the parties can request a judge, and it's in the judge's discretion based on the facts as presented to him or her. He said that he kind of said he didn't want one, that he, he had heard that it's not favorable to both parties and all this stuff. So he had heard this biased view of the... So the, it sounds like, yeah, it sounds like he's the one who didn't want it. And then and now you complain, you know, maybe he didn't like the outcome. Pasquale also acknowledged that the court system itself could be refined, that the court fees can be a burden, and that the length of the cases can be difficult to deal with. But ultimately, he doesn't feel like the court systems or the judges are leaving the fathers in the dust. Look, you need Solomon's wisdom to be a probate and family court judge. It's you know, because you cannot cut the baby in half. I, th I think it's, it's off the mark to say it's this judge that got it wrong. This judge favors women. No, they are, they're on an equal footing. If you have the evidence, you've got to put it in, give it to the guardian, put it in at uh, trial, etc. And, and um, the judges do the right thing. They, they get it right most of the time. That most of the time is what interests me. I also spoke with Mark Perlin, another professor of family law at Suffolk University. When I asked him about judges applying the law, he said this. Well, the law is kind of neutral on its face. The problem in the, in the legal system is that uh, laws are applied by human beings, and human beings, judges who come into things with sometimes different perspectives. So uh, I'm sure that you'll find instances where um, uh, certain judges' perspectives come in, uh, but in the end, they have to make decisions based on the law. First case on the docket, Katie Anderson. Yes, that's me. 30 days in jail, that's me. Lock her up, Dan. This perception that justice is not blind and that some judges might have a bias towards the mother is one shared by Chris. That and the lack of a clear definition when it comes to what's in the child's best interest, it's no wonder that some dads may feel like the custody favors the mom. And what the father's rights proponents are trying to do is even the playing field. There's no like guidelines saying that the father, you know, she'll have the son so many, so often and for whatnot. Only that, that to pay the child support, but not be with the child. And it's unfortunate because the mother's going ahead and trying to do every obstacle to hold me with my son. Pasquale said the law has changed for the better, but may not be where father's rights activists need it to be. And I think for the father's rights group, if you will, um, you know, the change hasn't happened fast enough, quick enough, their rights not being recognized as, as quickly as they want. It doesn't mean to say that it, that it, 
that is not happening. It is happening. It has been happening um, where uh, both parents are on an equal footing. Right now, Chris sees his son about five days a month. He pays $300 a week in child support. As the non-custodial parent, he's still not able to pick him up from school without any pr- with Right now, Chris sees his son five days a month. As the non-custodial parent, he's still not able to pick him up from school without permission from the mother. What he's still asking for is reasonable time with his child, to be able to call him every day, in the morning, at night, to be able to pick him up from school, to have access to his medical records, attend his school and sporting events. Missing his whole life, and yeah. he has a whole another life with his mother, but he also has a life with his dad too. Yeah. And uh, he's not gonna get that unless a father goes heads and fights to see his kid. This is Not Fair, the podcast. This has been Not Fair, the podcast. On our final episode, we'll look at stories of the difficulties faced by college students. I've been your host, Zoe Mitchell.